Please be advised that this podcast explores the subject of mental illness. It makes mention of murder, hanging and suicide and describes several violent acts that some listeners may find distressing. 1844 was a dark year for the town of Sydney. Australia was just starting to recover from a terrible depression that had seen the collapse of six banks. Crime was sweeping the streets with up to 30 cases of theft in the courts every day and the year was punctuated by several appalling murders. The first of these took place on the 5th of January when Ellen Jamison, widow and mother of two, was attacked in her shop on Kent Street. The last took place on December 18th when Joseph Mayrick, a surgeon visiting Sydney on his way back to England, was shot on Hunter Street. Though these two crimes were completely unrelated, they bore some interesting similarities. Both acts were sudden, unprovoked, and committed upon their victims by total strangers. Each murderer was immediately apprehended and taken into police custody. And not long after each of their victims was placed in the ground at Devonshire Street Cemetery, they would plead not guilty, and their attorneys argued defences of insanity. The only possible reprieve from the hangman's noose. You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. In this episode, through the lens of these two murders, we'll take a look at mental illness in colonial Sydney, how medicine and the law clashed as they grappled with questions of personal accountability and the unsound mind. The murders of Ellen Jamison and Joseph Mayrick are both fascinating in their own ways, and we're going to go into some of the detail of each of these stories. But first, it's helpful to understand that these cases were tried very soon after some remarkable legal challenges had changed the way that lunatics would be diagnosed and treated. Lunacy is a legal term at this point. In 1843, the Dangerous Lunatics Act was passed as the first kind of local piece of legislation. This is Dr James Dunk, a research associate at the University of Sydney and author of the book Bedlam at Botany Bay. The stated purpose was to protect the public from dangerous lunatics and there were certain checks and balances that needed to be made before a person could be placed in an asylum. There had to be some medical evidence, there had to be some sort of involvement by magistrates, or there could be a a more formal process through court, a a commission of lunacy, where a judge would hear evidence, and then there'd be a finding, and then they'd be entrusted to the care of a a committee. I mean, the the whole idea of a dangerous lunatics act, or the dangerousness, is that lunacy is something which makes people unpredictable, ungoverned. They don't discipline themselves, and so the law, the courts need to step in and be able to have a way of securing this population. So I suppose there's a balancing implicitly there between the the rights of the people, of the public, to be unmolested, to be safe. But the rights of the person who may be subject to these proceedings aren't really documented, aren't really um, explicitly talked about. But of course, it involves an entire suspension of their rights. And that's what we, when we think of an an asylum in the 19th century, and we think of some of the kind of discussions around this, and and quite angry discussions sometimes, or emotional discussions, it's about the, the fear of losing those rights. The Dangerous Lunatics Act James is talking about here was introduced when a man called Charles Heinemann was arrested while giving a political speech at the Sydney racecourse. 
He was thrown in the lunatic asylum without the authorities needing to prove that he was, in fact, insane. His friends lobbied for his release. He brought forward a lawsuit of wrongful imprisonment, which he won, and the Dangerous Lunatics Act was born. But missing from this legislation was any test for the doctors upon whose medical evidence these cases would rely. If a medical gentleman said a person was insane, that was enough to satisfy the court. But how did they know? By the mid-19th century, post-Enlightenment medicine had, relatively speaking, come a long way. Most importantly, perhaps, in beginning to separate itself from religion, out with the devil and in with things like phrenology, a popular theory that said the shape of the skull could be read to determine psychological tendencies. But whatever scientific developments were underway, the unsound mind was still a highly contentious area and many in the legal community were understandably sceptical. The training for a doctor at this point is not very precise in mental illness. There may be no training at all. And so words like a mania, lunacy, melancholia can be sort of thrown around a little bit with a little bit of vagueness. But in these kind of trials, you often have multiple doctors. And, you know, there are these quite scandalous cases in which there are up to 10 doctors giving really quite wildly divergent descriptions of the symptoms, but even once the symptoms are agreed upon, having very different conclusions about what that means. We have different formulations of what is, in fact, the kind of the root condition or, or problem. Uh, and then, of course, different readings of what that, what that means for the person's behaviour and, and for whether they might be a threat or a person of concern. This failure of the law to provide a framework around defining mental illness came to a head in Britain the same year the Dangerous Lunatics Act was introduced in Australia. In what's widely accepted as a case of mistaken identity, a Scotsman by the name of McNaughton tried to assassinate the British Prime Minister, instead killing his secretary. McNaughton's attorney presented a defence of legal insanity. Nine doctors, some of whom had never even met McNaughton, gave testimony. Yet the court found that his delusions of political persecution were so severe that he was not in control of his actions when he fired his weapon. He could not distinguish right from wrong. McNaughton was declared not guilty and an uproar broke out across the United Kingdom. Queen Victoria, herself the subject of several assassination attempts, stepped into the fray, demanding that something be done to prevent such a miscarriage of justice from happening again. The review process that followed resulted in the first legal test for insanity, the McNaughton Rule, which is still upheld in courts today. The following year, our two murderers have their days in court. It's 1844. Convict transportation to New South Wales had ended four short years earlier. There were still some convicts serving their sentences, but thousands more had obtained their pardons and were released into the population. But by this time, the number of free settlers had outnumbered the criminal element for well over a decade. Here's historian Dr Rachel Franks. Certainly by the 1840s, when there was this deep-seated fear that the place was falling apart, you had a lot of free settlers and people were genuinely frightened. So there's this stereotype of all of colonial Australia that people were condemned. It was a place of banishment and self-imposed exile. But we forget for a lot of people, 
it was a place to remake yourself. You know, you could be huge in Australia with a little bit of talent. And if you had moderate talent, you could be enormously successful. Class mobility was certainly on the table. You didn't necessarily have to be born to wealth. So you had some of the most brilliant minds of the 1800s coming to Sydney to practice law specifically because they wanted to abolish capital punishment and they had a better chance of doing it here where people were more amenable to change and progress. Yes, we are loyal to England, but there was this real tangible loyalty to what Australia was and what Australia could be and what were going to be the points to differentiate us from the rest of the world, what was going to make us better. So we have this mix of free settlers and former convicts working to build a new society, a society described by a British select committee as having a state of morality worse than that of any other community in the world. Whatever ideals of betterment may have been at work, Sydney couldn't shake that feeling of fear. This was a penal colony and criminals were living amongst them. Of particular concern were convicts who had re-offended and served additional sentences at secondary places of punishment. So coal mines at Newcastle or off to Van Diemen's Land or to Norfolk Island, places where if you look at the historical record, you can actually see people going slowly insane because of the conditions that they're forced to live under. It's at the hands of such a convict, a John Natchbull, that Ellen Jamison would meet a gruesome and painful end. So Natchbull had a career of making bad decisions and getting into trouble. He just did one stupid thing after another. He joined the Navy. Like a lot of people after the Napoleonic Wars, he was stood down. Some people would just, you know, go home, get a job. He went into highway robbery. So he comes out to Australia, he's on good behaviour, he gets released, he becomes involved in something else, he decides to forge a cheque. Forgery in early Australia is almost as likely to get you hanged as murder. So not only does he forge a cheque, he forges a cheque for over £6, which is a huge amount of money, and he forges the signature of Justice James Dowling. So he really wasn't going to get away with it. So again, the whole idea of transportation, he goes to Norfolk Island, he's involved in a mutiny, he's involved in a poisoning plot, he's involved in all these terrible things. He eventually finds his way back to Sydney in the early 1840s. He falls in love, he proposes, there's going to be a wedding and you'd think, you just think, okay, he's going to redeem himself and there's going to be this tale of let's live happily ever after. But he realises he actually doesn't have any money to pay for the cost of the wedding ceremony. So he robs a small shop down in Kent Street. He's interrupted by Ellen Jamison, the shop owner, and instead of panicking and running away, instead of any of the other things he could have done, he kills her with a tomahawk. It's a gross crime. It takes her two weeks to die. And you can imagine colonial Sydney, there's no dead old, there are no painkillers. They just try and make you comfortable. And 
she does die and he's charged with the murder. And Robert Lowe defends him. Quite the celebrity lawyer, quite mad, but absolutely brilliant. He was an albino, so visually this quite striking figure going down the streets of Sydney. Lowe was well aware of McNaughton's rule, the new test for insanity, even inspired by it. It seems he wanted to provide the medical evidence required, but didn't have a proper amount of time to prepare. He requests a delay and is refused by the judge. But rather than conceding defeat, Lowe sees this as an opportunity to take a very novel and risky tack. It's the first case in Australia of using moral insanity as a defence for murder. Lowe's bold approach would resonate through the court system for the next century. He argued that it was a hereditary personality defect that created in Natchbull an irresistible impulse to murder, some mental infirmity which paralysed his better nature. One newspaper account described Lowe as ingenious. Some people thought, this is terrific. See how enlightened we are, see how progressive we are. So he had all these phrenologists really excited that this was going to get up. And everybody else was absolutely horrified. So in this really dramatic courtroom scene, the jury didn't even leave. There was no, oh, let's go out the back and have a cup of tea and think about it. They just sat there and said, guilty. That was the end of of Natchbull. And he was hanged in public. And such was the publicity around the crime and around the trial of the crime, it was actually the biggest audience for a public hanging. 10,000 people walked across Sydney to watch Natchbull hang. So he was hanged and the knot, which is supposed to sit under your left ear, actually slid around to the back of his neck. So he suffocated and it actually took him quite some time to die on the scaffold. And you can imagine 10,000 people there watching his body squirm from this height and you start to lose control of your own body. So there's the smell of death while he's still alive. And one of the really interesting things about Natchbull, it becomes quite complicated because he was the son of a baronet. You know, he was royal stock. You can search Natchbull social pages today and see royal weddings. He was a man that had been given everything at the start. He didn't have to work for it. And even right up until the morning of his hanging, there was this fear that the governor was going to step in and the old class connections, those really overt links from England, were going to interfere with this judicial system and this this new place that was going to be better. But while Natchbull may have been hanged like any other murderer, there are a few things that were out of the ordinary about his end. Instead of mounting the gallows in prison dress, he wore a mourning suit complete with white gloves and a handkerchief. And instead of a burial inside the prison grounds, a mourning carriage transported his body from the jail to the Devonshire Street Cemetery, where he was given a funeral attended by his friends. Natchbull was buried not far from where his victim lay. 
Ellen Jamison's funeral is not mentioned in any of the newspapers, but what does appear are advertisements appealing for donations to support her surviving children, who, in a weird twist of fate, would end up in the guardianship of Robert Lowe, the defender of their mother's murderer. There's no record of a surviving headstone for Ellen Jamison. With so little to her name at the end of her life, it's unlikely that she ever had one. Our second victim, however, Dr Joseph Mayrick, did have a headstone, a large one which would be photographed by Josephine Foster in 1901. His murder would take place not far from where Ellen Jamison was attacked, on a street that I walk down every day, Hunter Street, which runs between one of Sydney's major city train stations and the State Library. While surrounded by the chaos of the modern city, I often try to imagine this same Hunter Street 174 years ago, where a sudden, awful occurrence changed the fate of two men in one panicked hour. It's 11.30 on Thursday the 19th of December, 1844. Two men are walking along this very same street. They're chatting as they stroll along when, out of nowhere, one of the men is suddenly shot at from behind. The bullet grazes his ear as it flies past. The man turns and sees the shooter holding a second pistol, aiming it right at him. In a panic, he runs, zigzagging away, desperate to avoid the second shot. The pistol fires, but this time the bullet strikes, passing under his right armpit and into his chest. Chaos breaks out on one of the busiest streets of the town. Dr Joseph Mayrick, our victim, is bleeding and in shock. He rushes into the nearest building, Mr Mappin's cutler shop, and exclaims, the villain has shot me. Helped into an inner room, he's laid on a sofa and medical assistance is immediately sent for. Dr William Bland, surgeon and ex-convict, is the first medico to arrive and he pronounces the wound as fatal. The dying Mayrick announces he wants to make his will, which is hastily drawn up by one of the bystanders. An eyewitness later reports that he placed his mark to it and expired within half an hour of the time he received the wound. News of the shooting spreads quickly, with two additional doctors arriving, along with several of Mayrick's friends. Dr Mayrick had arrived in Sydney two months prior. He'd spent a large part of his professional life as a surgeon on board ships that ventured to the South Seas for the lucrative business of whale hunting. Mayrick then practised throughout the Pacific, the Fiji Islands, the Bay of Islands in New Zealand, and then in Tahiti. He enjoyed success as a doctor and had finally decided to return home to England, presumably to retire comfortably and enjoy the fruits of his labours. He had just planned to pass through Sydney, yet this is where his life ended. As a newspaper report lamented, he was shot in the open street, in broad daylight, like a dog. His hastily drawn up will bequeathed his worldly goods to his nephew, John Mayrick Roberts. From his home in Van Diemen's Land, John arranged for a headstone to be erected over his uncle's grave in the Devonshire Street Cemetery. In memory of his affectionate uncle, Joseph Mayrick, surgeon, late of Tahiti, who departed this life December 19th, 1844, aged 53 years. He was unfortunately assassinated by a lunatic in this city. He was a man of strict integrity, beloved and respected by all who knew him. Tis finished, tis done, the spirit is fled. 
Our brother is dead. The Christian is gone. The Christian is living in Jesus' love and gladly receiving a kingdom above. But there's another side to this story. Who was this lunatic who assassinated the doctor? The shooter of the pistols and the murderer of Dr. Mayrick was one Lucius O'Brien. As Mayrick was stumbling into the shop to seek assistance, bystanders seized O'Brien and conveyed him to the watch house. O'Brien refused to give his name and had, as a witness later recalled, a very wild appearance. Sometime later, Francis, Lucius' elder brother and also editor of the newspaper, The Sydney Monitor, came to speak to him. The prisoner told his brother he was done. He wished to die and had taken enough arsenic to kill a bullock. Doctors were called to pump his stomach, a procedure that made Lucius so ill that it was decided to move him to Darlinghurst Jail, possibly for medical treatment or closer observation. While in custody, witnesses reported he appeared to be in full possession of his reason, not showing any symptoms of incoherence at all. When asked about his behaviour that morning, Lucius said he did not know he had shot anyone. Two days later, an inquest was held at the Albion Inn on George Street. Jurors were sworn in, then proceeded to the shop to view Marrick's body. A number of witnesses came forward to give their accounts of the shooting. One had known O'Brien for some time and always observed something remarkable in his appearance. He seemed to be of a morose and morbid disposition and regarded him as a very eccentric and singular character. Yet just after the shooting, this same witness said he seemed incredibly tranquil and not at all agitated. Lucius' housemate, a Mr Edward Kennedy Sylvester, also gave evidence. He had known O'Brien for 18 months, living in the same house, even sleeping in the same room. Sylvester said for the past 12 months, he believed that Lucius was insane and had told Lucius' other brother, George, on a number of occasions that if he was left to his own devices in the world, he would someday take life. As the months passed, O'Brien would not be guided by anyone. His behaviour was erratic, often wildly singing snatches of songs or breaking into a kind of dance which he called the Highland Fling. His roommate said that he often felt worried that O'Brien might destroy both of them during the night. Despite the evidence to the contrary, the inquest found that Lucius O'Brien was in a state of mind to distinguish right from wrong and was consequently guilty of willful murder. A couple of weeks later, Lucius appeared at his trial in a weak and exhausted state. The Attorney General warned the jury that if an insanity defence was presented, it needed to be viewed with very great deliberation, for nothing was more easy than for a criminal to conduct himself as to induce the suspicion that he was insane. Despite this warning that Lucius might be faking his insanity, the trial jury reached the opposite verdict to their inquest counterparts. Unlike Lowe in the Natchbull case, O'Brien's lawyer examined several medical gentlemen on the stand and met the test for insanity. The jury declared that O'Brien was in an unsound state of mind and that they would not trouble the court any further. The judge agreed, returning a verdict of insanity, thus saving Lucius from the gallows. On Saturday, 18th of January, 1845, a month after shooting Marrick dead, Lucius was transported from Darlinghurst Jail to the asylum at Tarbon Creek, later known as the Gladesville Mental Hospital. 
The account of him being taken to the asylum is vivid and unsettling. He is submissive, accepting of his fate. He knows where they're taking him, but he shows no signs of unwillingness to go there. The records that allow us to piece this story together go some way to helping us understand the complexity that was Lucia's condition. We learn from a report in the newspaper that Lucius was shrewd and sensible as he chatted in the carriage, but there remained a recklessness about him. It's hard to reconcile these descriptions, shrewd and sensible and reckless. Upon arrival, Lucius joined his companions at the asylum with apparent perfect composure, pleased with rather than regretting his introduction amongst them. In the same year that the awful occurrence happened, Francis O'Brien and his wife Georgiana gave birth to their first child, a baby boy they named Lucius. It's one of the warmer parts that comes out of a history which can be a bit cold and a bit dark or grim, is that we do have all these instances of family members, of good friends or business partners, not only suffering through an illness, but accompanying somebody, being the, the friend and their support person. You learn about the nature of the care the kind of um, efforts that people made or the sort of efforts they made to provide for and, and care for their friends and family. You know, expensive private medical care, correspondence with high up doctors, different kinds of accommodations. So they, they rent out a, an apartment for the person. And then sometimes you come to a point where it's, it doesn't work anymore. Those provisions are not enough. And that's often where you come into these, these records where admission to an asylum is necessary. Some sort of legal proceeding might be necessary. While we can imagine the challenge that must have faced Lucia's family, they stood by him at every turn, visiting him in the lockup, seeking legal counsel, and his brother Francis accompanying him on the journey to Tarbon Creek. But evidence given at the inquest suggested that Lucia's brother George knew his behaviour was problematic. Was there anything that could have been done to prevent Lucia's behaviour from spiralling out of control? Today, if there are concerns about somebody, whether you have concerns yourself or you have concerns about someone else, there's a much more accessible, almost like a lower level entry point, intervention. You know, you see a doctor, you might see a psychiatrist, you might be prescribed something. And the idea is that that will help you to function, to live a, a regular life as, as much as possible. Whereas uh, in the 1830s and 40s, it tends to be you have eccentricity and behaviour that's not normal in the sense that other people might see it. it see, people see it as strange. At some point, uh, the behaviour tips from just being strange into something that's concerning. And then what, is there any action taken? And there's always someone saying, I thought that was strange. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought that was so strange that they must have been mad. And yet no real um, action is taken. And yet the, the recourse is either to jail you know, to, to have somebody arrested uh, or to have them uh, quite an expensive procedure at the court to have them declared insane and then to have them placed in an asylum. And so the intervention is much more severe. You know, it's not that it's permanent, but it's a large difference from the, the life that they were living before. And so I suppose there's much more of an incentive to just to, to live with someone, to, to accept their eccentricities. So what would life actually have been like for Lucius in the asylum? Tarbon Creek was the first asylum built in the colony for those who were mentally ill. You know, there were a couple of earlier asylums which had quite shoddy ramshackle types of institutions. But this was um, one of the first buildings in the colony that was really, you know, a lot of money went into it and a lot of stone went into it. So it was a reasonably imposing structure, I think, 
The superintendent, who was kind of headhunted in England um, for the job, uh, he and his wife, who would be matron, Joseph Digby and Susanna Digby, they were brought across from England because it was seen that there, it was viewed that there were no qualified people in Sydney who could take on this sort of responsibility. So, I mean, that's, again, is some, some level of cost and investment in this problem of mental illness. Uh, and despite what people might have said in these kind of angry exchanges in newspapers or in Parliament, the um, asylum, I don't think, was a, a Bastille or a, a you know a, a living tomb. These kinds of phrases that people use about asylums it certainly had its problems. You know, it's difficult to know with clarity, given that there are a lot of not a lot of records available. But what we do know is that there was some mechanical, physical restraint used, so some sorts of belts and handcuffs and straitjackets. But I don't think that's the ready resort. I don't think people are just waiting to lock everyone up and um, abuse them. In fact, uh, in general, the, the treatment in this place was according to a sort of a moral therapy idea. Uh, moral therapy is a, uh, emerged around the, the turn of the 19th century. And the idea is that instead of essentially doing humoral, heroic treatments, which is tends to be bloodletting and vomiting and other kinds of purging, we should treat patients with respect, uh, with gentleness. We should give them good food and a nice place to walk around in. All it really meant is psychological therapy rather than a kind of a physical direct therapy to a, a person's body. It was a moral therapy which addressed their minds. And it was about the human faculty. And the, in, in, eventually they would in fact recover their senses through fairly natural means. That the, the human mind was capable of that kind of healing. But the success rate of this moral therapy is difficult to determine. It's very hard to speak clearly about numbers. The records are not great for this period and even worse for earlier periods. What I can say is that nobody is interested in keeping people for a long time in the asylum. It costs money. So the government uh, looks for ways of reducing its liabilities, reducing its costs. And so, you know, for a free person, there's always a discussion of who's going to pay. And so you'd find a family member who would take that cost on. Uh, where it's not possible to find that person, then they'd be admitted as a pauper and the government would pay. And so perhaps his brother was paying and there was less of an imperative for the government to, to stop paying for this accommodation and, and board and treatment. But in general, the, nobody is interested in keeping people there for decades. There are strong therapeutic reasons why doctors are thinking, we've treated this person. The symptoms are often, the symptoms will be relieved. They wouldn't often necessarily say cured because that seems a bit of a bold statement for a mental illness in the 19th century. And so often they will just be relieved and they will often be able to be discharged back to, and it could be their family, it could be another institution, um, could be into discharge to freedom is the way they, they talk about it. Lucius went into Tarbon Creek the year after it opened, but it quickly became overcrowded. Five years later, the governor declared his intention to move incurable, chronic lunatics to the Parramatta Lunatic Asylum, later known as the Parramatta Hospital for the Insane. It seems that Lucius was one of the incurables who were part of this move. But despite the evidence that the asylum was clean, that the inmates were well-fed and given a certain amount of freedom within the grounds, there were a lot of grim stories that came out of those walls. And it can't have been much of a life for someone with no hope of release. The unclaimed remains of many inmates are buried in unmarked graves at the All Saints Anglican Cemetery in Parramatta. 
Lucia's family did claim him after his death. He's buried with his brother Francis and a number of other family members at Waverley Cemetery in Sydney's East. His date of death is listed on the gravestone as the 27th of June, 1891. However, the newspapers report the death of a Lucius O'Brien two days prior on the 25th of June. A Lucius O'Brien, who at the Parramatta Hospital for the Insane, commits suicide by cutting his own throat. If this program has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Next time on The Burial Files, our final instalment. We return to where our story began at Central Station, where digging for the Metro project has unearthed more interesting finds. Well, this one that we're looking at, we don't think was exhumed. So what we're looking at is the original interment cut. What we've noted is that the original interment cuts actually take the shape of the coffins. Many thanks to James Dunk and Rachel Franks for sharing their knowledge with us. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and 17th of November 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound and features the voice of Phil Barter. I'm Elise Edmonds.